Thomas Lake is an award-winning senior writer for Sports Illustrated. And by the time he was 31 years old, he was writing Pulitzer-caliber stories for the magazine. Interestingly enough, though, the story that landed him a full-time job at Sports Illustrated had nothing to do with one of the four major sports, baseball, football, basketball, and yes, hockey. Hockey is one of the four major sports. <laughs> Nor with any major sports personality. No, the story that landed him a full-time job at Sports Illustrated had to do rather with an obscure sport in a small town. In the spring of 2008, Lake asked Sports Illustrated if he could write a feature story on... Good guess. Another good guess. Women college softball. The editors for Sports Illustrated doubted that Lake could write something about women's college softball that the readers would like, but nonetheless, they agreed because this particular story had a strange and unusual, you could even say, power to it. You see, there's this player, Sarah Tulsky. She hits a home run one day, the very first of her career, very first of her career, and she is so excited that as she's running, she forgets to touch first base. So her coaches yell, Sarah, 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 turn around, turn around, come back and touch first base. So she turns to come back, but when she does, she turns so quickly that she tears her ACL, a ligament in her knee, and then she falls to the ground. There's a big commotion. The umpire doesn't know what to do. Will the run count? At first, he says no because she didn't touch all the bases. Well, I can imagine a big argument breaks out between the coach and the umpire. All the while, Sarah is lying in the dirt in terrible pain. And her teammates can't help her, otherwise she would be out. Well, there's this girl playing first base for the other team, Mallory Holtman. Mallory doesn't want to see this girl suffer. But you know what she does? She goes up to the umpire and she says, what if we carry her? And the umpire because it's in thought, can't think of a rule against it. So Mallory calls over the shortstop. They pick up this girl from the other team, and they carry her around the bases, stopping to let her touch each base, listen to this, helping her score a run against them, even though if they lose this game, they'll be out of the playoffs. And you know what? Mallory's team loses. And Mallory's last chance in college to make the playoffs is gone because she and the shortstop helped her opponent and carried, them, carried her all around the bases so they could score a run and win. Touching story, isn't it? Mallory, she didn't want to see that girl, her opponent, suffer. So at great cost to herself, 
she carried Sarah around the bases, bringing her all the way home, all at the expense, all at the cost of her losing the game, forfeiting her last chance to ever make the playoffs as a college softball player. As you can imagine, there's a reason why a story like this landed Lake a full-time job at Sports Illustrated. And that's because all great stories, all great stories, they captivate us, do they not? They get our minds thinking. They draw us in. But even more than that, great stories influence. They can often change the way we think, the way we perceive things. They can often impact the choices and decisions that we make. This morning, we're going to study and look at what is the greatest story, true story, in First and Second Samuel, and arguably the entire Old Testament. And I'm not overselling it. I, I want to argue that what we're going to look at this morning is even greater than the story of David and Goliath. And you know why? Because like with all great stories, the one in our passage this morning communicates a powerful truth, a truth that is meant to impact and influence our lives. Indeed, I'm going to argue and hopefully show you that the truth we see illustrated in this passage, in this text, it is the foundational doctrine that the New Testament authors consistently and frequently cite for almost every command concerning Christian living. This is to say, what we're going to see in our text this morning, you cannot find a more applicable truth. And what is that truth? Well, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. That's page 261 in that paperback Bible, in the seat in front of you. And as you're turning there, let me give you the context. When we last left David, God made a covenant with him. And you'll recall how God's covenant with David there in 2 Samuel 7 contains several promises, one of them being rest from Israel's enemies. And do you remember how David responded to God's coming, these incredible promises that God has made him already did? What did David do in response to God's promise? Remember what he did? It's not Jesus. It's not the chairs being left out. He prayed. Remember, David prayed in response. Indeed, David pleaded God's promises in his prayer, asking God to do as he had spoken. Well, 2 Samuel 8 records how the Lord began to fulfill some of those promises for David, particularly God's promise to give Israel rest from her enemies. You see, 2 Samuel chapter 8 is all about God's kingdom expanding under David's military leadership. As several commentators have pointed out, this chapter, in this chapter, Israel's kingdom practically doubles in size. And the wars listed in chapter 8 follow the four points of a compass. 
I'm going to throw it here up on the screen. David has victories to the west, verse 1, to the east, verse 2, to the north, verses 3 through 5, and to the south, verses 13 through 18. David rules, in 2 Samuel 8, the four corners of his world. Yet the most important detail you need to know about 2 Samuel 8 is what the author repeats several times, and that is this. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. This is what 2 Samuel 8 is all about. So the context of the story we're going to look at in chapter 9 is David having military victories. Okay? David, who once was hunted by Saul, is now an established king whose kingdom is expanding, whose territory is expanding. And here is where our story begins. And as we're about to see, our story begins with a very surprising request. Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. We read this. And David said... Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Now, let's just pause for a moment. This is just really, really odd. Do you see what's happening here? King David is looking for someone, anyone, any person from the household of Saul so he can show kindness to. Look, yes, I know... We all know David and Jonathan were really good friends. They're the best of buddies. But just think about this. Saul was the man who devoted the entire last half of his life to finding and killing David. And yet David is on the lookout to show kindness to any of his relatives? That is strange. But there's another reason why this is also so surprisingly odd. Uh, I, I grew up with two brothers and a sister. Yes, I have a sister too. Anyone else grow up with siblings? Raise your hand if you grew up with siblings. Okay. Tell me, and I want you to be honest. Do you all ever do what I'm about to describe? Okay. It's after dinner. Dessert's about to be served. But there's only one cookie left but there's four of you. Maybe you didn't do this, but this would be, maybe just, and then you went over to the cookie and you licked it <laughs> to make sure none of your other siblings would have a cookie. Anyone else do something like that and willing to admit it? Okay, I see that hand. Thank you, an honest person. Yes, another honest person. Honest person, right? You just see it, right? Okay. What were you doing in that moment? Well, you're doing lots of things, but you know what you're doing? You were securing your prize, weren't you? Listen to me. You were making sure no one else could ever take your cookie from you, right? 
Well, in a similar way, that's what an Eastern monarch would do with his throne. No, he wouldn't lick it. But he would make sure that no one else could get to it. Just like you would make sure that no one else could get to your cookie. You see, as historians tell us, it was common practice at this time for a new king to go and kill any relatives of the former king as those relatives could be a real threat to the throne. So after David had ascended to become king, it would have been, please hear me, proper and just and normative at that time for him not to go around and to show kindness, for him to go around and kill all the descendants of his rival Saul, as kings normally did in those days. However, that's not what David is doing here, is it? He's not looking to kill a descendant of Saul. No, he's looking to show the kindness of God to him. So let's see if there's anyone remaining from the house of Saul. Look at what Ziba says in verses 3 and 6. And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Maker, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker and the son of Emil at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. David's question is answered. There is one remaining. The son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, whom the text says is crippled in his what? Feet. Now, since Mephibosheth is going to play an important role in our text this morning, it's important that we learn to say his name correctly. I have it here up on the screen, broken down into syllables. Let's say it together. Ready? Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. And please know, trust me, the irony is not lost on me that with all my pronunciation difficulties, <laughs> I am the one actually teaching you how to pronounce this guy's name. Okay, trust me. The irony is not lost on me. But truly, this is how you say his name. Let's say it one more time. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. You know what it means? Shame. Or big shame. And when we find Mephibosheth, we discover that his life is indeed marked by shame. First, you'll notice that he is a crippled orphan. As we learned back in 1 Samuel 31, Jonathan was killed next to his father Saul in the battle against the Philistines. When Jonathan left to go fight that war, he left behind his five-year-old son, Mephibosheth. And when word got back that Jonathan had died, the child's nurse grabbed him and fled the capital in a rush. But in her haste to leave, she dropped the little boy and crippled his feet permanently. And because they didn't have the medical treatment like we have today, 
he lived the rest of his life crippled, unable to walk. Just imagine that for a moment. Imagine the difficulties that he faced. Imagine the embarrassment and shame he bore for having this disability. But then second, notice that he is in hiding. The text says that he was living in the remote town of Lodabar. You know what Lodabar means? Nothing. He's living in a town of nothing. You know what else we learn about him? He has nothing. He's poor. The text says that he's living off someone else, maker. Now think about this. At one point, this boy was the son of a prince. Now he is a poor, crippled man living in a remote town. But third, you need to keep in mind that he's also under a death sentence. As an enemy of David's kingdom, he is rightfully deserving of death. Notice, this is why he reacts the way he does when he finally meets King David. What does he do when he sees King David? He falls down on his what? His face. So here's Mephibosheth, and what have we learned about him? We learn that he's hiding in shame. He's deserving of death. And he's a crippled orphan. You you know who Mephibosheth is like? He's like that softball player, Sarah. Lying hurt and crippled on the ground. Vulnerable before her opponent. Now notice what King David does. Look at verse 7. Notice the first words out of David's mouth after he greets him. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you the kindness, show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. This is referring to Mephibosheth, the grandson. And he's saying to Ziba, Ziba, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. 
And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And, and I, I want you to notice, he too could be a threat. But David welcomes him in his house. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. In the movie Les Mis, there is a scene towards the end of the movie when Zaver, the man who spent all his days pursuing the criminal Jean Valjean, he's, he's captured by Valjean. And Javert is marched into a dark alley where he fully expects to be shot and killed by Valjean. Yet, instead of, instead of killing Javert, what does Valjean do? To his amazement, Valjean lets him go free. In the passage we just read, Mephibosheth is brought before the king and like Javert, Mephibosheth is fully expecting, fully expecting the king to kill him. We know this is the case because David has to say to him what? Do not fear. Yet instead of executing him, what does David do? David extends kindness to him. Right? In the previous section, we learned a lot about Mephibosheth. Now notice what we learn about King David in this passage. Whereas Mephibosheth hid in shame, what does David do? David seeks him out. David was the one who initiated this relationship. Second, whereas Mephibosheth was deserving of death, King David grants him life. He does not execute Mephibosheth. No, he spares his life and blesses him. And then third, whereas Mephibosheth was a poor orphan, what do we see? King David adopted him as his own son. Notice four times, four times in this chapter, David says that Mephibosheth will eat at his table just like one of David's sons. When David found Mephibosheth, he was living in Lodabar, a barren wasteland, but now Mephibosheth has been given all the land. Think about that. All the land that belonged to his grandfather, Saul. But please notice, in order for Mephibosheth to be restored to a rich son, it had to come at a great cost to King David. Just like it cost Mallory her final softball game to carry Sarah around the bases, so too it cost David to adopt and restore Mephibosheth. And David, we see in this text, gladly absorbs that cost. And friend, you know what we see happening? You know what you call all this we see transpiring between David and Mephibosheth? The Bible has a word for it. You know what the word is? Grace. Grace is unmerited favor towards ill-deserving people. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is showing loving kindness to those who are unworthy, and that's precisely what we see 
David, God's true anointed king, doing in 2 Samuel 9? You see, Faith, I want to argue that this chapter beautifully, beautifully illustrates this life-transforming truth and a truth and a doctrine that is central to the Christian faith, and that is this, and that is God's king gives grace to undeserving people. Amen. God's king gives grace to undeserving people. Friend, do you know that the one person whom the Bible gives the most space to is David? Did you know this? More ink is spilled on David in the pages of Scripture than anyone else. You know why that is? It's because when we see David at his best, we get a glimpse into the heart of the son of David, God's true and greater king, Jesus Christ. You see, King David is a preview to the feature film of King Jesus. Friend, the Bible teaches that we all are like Mephibosheth. Just as Mephibosheth once walked with his father Jonathan, so too man originally walked with God. But sin came and man suffered a fall, a fall much worse than Mephibosheth's, which left mankind as a permanent spiritual cripple alienated from God. This means faith as a result, all of us are born with a sinful nature that separates us from God. We do, we do not come into this world as God's children. We come into this world as crippled orphans alienated from the Lord. But furthermore, like with Mephibosheth, because of our sin, we are enemies of God rightfully deserving his death. The Apostle Paul goes out of his way in his letters to make this point. We see this in Romans 5 and Colossians 1. And finally, like Mephibosheth, our nature is to hide in shame. We know we are sinners. We know we have transgressed God's law. So like Mephibosheth, who was from the house of Saul and hid from the king, so also we, from the house of Adam, we follow in the steps of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and hide from God. And you know why we hide from God? Because we're fearful of his justice. But praise be to God that God the Father did not send Jesus Christ into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Amen? Just as David sought out Mephibosheth to give him grace and eternal life, so too Jesus Christ, God's true and final king, has come into this world to seek and to save the lost, undeserving people who are rightfully deserving of his wrath, people like you and people like me. Amen? You know what this means, friend? It means that when you put your trust in Christ, God's true king, believing that he died the death you should have died for your sins, you know what? Christ grants you eternal life. Not only that, you no longer have to fear the judgment of the king because you are forgiven. 
And furthermore, when you place your trust in Jesus, you are now adopted as a child into God's family. Amen? It gets better. I'm not done. Like with Mephibosheth, your inheritance is restored. Through our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, we become co-heirs with Christ. How great is that? God's king, praise him. God's king gives grace to undeserving people, and that's us. This concept of grace, this idea of a king's kindness was masterfully illustrated in a story in the Los Angeles Times. On June 19, 2011, the LA Times ran an article entitled this, quote, South Korean pastor tends an unwanted flock. The article reports how in December of 2009, Korean pastor Lee Jung-rak built a wooden drop box on the outer wall of his home. The box was lined with a soft pink and blue blanket, and it had a bell that rang every time the little door was opened. But the box wasn't intended for receiving food, clothing, and packages. It was meant to collect unwanted babies. You see, South Korea has a problem. As the LA Times reports, the people of South Korea they prize and they idolize physical perfection. In fact, they prize it so much that babies who are born with any kind of physical defect or disability are often abandoned to left die in the streets. And this broke the heart of Pastor Lee. So in an effort to save the lives of these little babies, he built this Dropbox. And at first, he wasn't sure if anyone would actually use it, you know, place their disabled or disformed or unwanted child in the Dropbox. But sure enough, people did. In December of 2009, he installed it, and immediately, babies began appearing, some with their umbilical cords still attached. In fact, within a matter of months, Pastor Lee had 20 children under he and his wife's care. If you were to look closely at the children in this orphanage, you would see that one is deaf, blind, and paralyzed. You would see that another has a tiny, misshapen head. You'd find a baby with Down syndrome, another with cerebral palsy. You'd find another who's a quadriplegic with permanent brain damage. But to Pastor Lee, they're all perfect. A young filmmaker who lives just outside of Los Angeles read this article and was compelled to fly over to South Korea in order to capture this amazing story on camera. And I want to show you this trailer to the film for it powerfully captures what we've been talking about. And as you watch this video, see yourself as one of these orphans. And then I was weeping. I always cry when I'm angry. And she said, why are you crying? It's only orphan.
South Korea's first and only box to collect abandoned infants. Unwanted babies are abandoned on the streets of Seoul, South Korea every year. Tragic loss of life moved the pastor said to set up a way for saving unwanted babies. They're just human beings, just like anyone else. They have the right to live. The people feel a certain way, and a whole lot of people feel a certain way. Things usually can get done. But these children, they're helpless, they're voiceless. Who's going to speak for them? Powerful video, isn't it? What I love about that orphanage and that trailer is it's a powerful illustration of the family of God, the church. The church is not filled with perfect people. No, it's filled with broken people, crippled by their sin, who have received the gracious love of God's King, Jesus. Did you hear what the pastor said about those disabled orphans? He said, these are not the unnecessary ones. And you know what, friend, and neither are you. Though you are crippled with sin, God is saying to you this morning, you are not the unnecessary one. 
Well, that's not all God is saying. Did you hear what else the pastor said? He said that he would die for these orphans. And you know what? That's precisely what Jesus Christ has done for you. He died the death you deserved for your sin. Christian, in Christ you've received grace. And what I want you to see, Christian, is that the New Testament frequently and repeatedly cites this amazing grace as the motivation for Christian living. Friend, it is because of this grace, please hear me, that we are always, always, always to clothe ourselves in humility and to forsake pride. In each and every situation without exception, consider what Paul writes in Colossians 3. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, you chosen orphan who have been crippled in your sin, you chosen one who God reached out to adopt you into his family to receive his love, his blessing, to share the inheritance of Christ, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What are we to put on? Compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. When we understand grace, when we understand who we once were and now who we are in Christ, that is the motivation to why we are to be kind-hearted, compassionate, gentle, and patient in each and every interaction that we have. This grace is also the reason why we're to count others as more significant than ourselves and to put their needs above our own. For what does Paul write in Philippians 2? You know this passage well. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, man, if you were an orphan and you've been adopted, you do have comfort from love any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Christian, have you received affection and sympathy from Jesus Christ? Yes. Okay. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. How are we to live in light of this grace? Do nothing. Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. When I consider how Jesus Christ left his throne in heaven to seek and to save sinful, undeserving people, how he looked out for our interests by going to the cross, how can I then fight for my way in light of this great grace, in light of this encouragement, all undeserving, by the way, how can we fight, dig in our heels to get what we want? In light of the selfless sacrifice of Christ, how can any of us willingly have selfish ambition? 
friend, do you insist on your own way? Are you easily irritated? Are you impatient? If so, it might very well be because you have not understood the grace you've been shown. You've been shown such a far greater grace than that of Mephibosheth. People who are easily offended do not grasp grace. For if they truly saw themselves for the wretched sinner they are, if they understood that they truly deserve nothing from God but judgment for their sin, they wouldn't be offended. <laughs> Indeed, people who are entitled fail to grasp God's grace. For if they did grasp it, they would say like the Apostle Paul, what do I have that I have not received? Faith, all of life is full of grace, of, is a gift of God's grace his kindness to undeserving sinners. Yet as amazing as this Dropbox story is, the behind-the-scenes story is just as remarkable. You see, friend, God's grace, when it's properly understood, it ought to reorient our entire way of thinking and our way of living, to reorient us away from being self-focused to God-focused and wanting to serve others. And I say that the backstory is even more remarkable because the man who produced this movie, Brian Ivey, the young filmmaker, he actually became a Christian while making the movie. In an acceptance speech where this movie won an award, he shared that when he saw firsthand the kindness and grace that Pastor Lee showed these orphans, the same kindness that David showed Mephibosheth, he came to see that he too was a crippled orphan whom God loves very much. My question to you, friend, is have you seen yourself in the same way? Have you come to see that you're a Mephibosheth? And I, and I say that the grace David showed Mephibosheth is not nearly as great as the grace that we've been shown in the Lord Jesus Christ because if you notice What's the last sentence of this chapter? What does it say? It reminds us about what about Mephibosheth? That his feet were what? Lame. David died. Mephibosheth died. But the grace and kindness that we are shown in the Lord Jesus Christ is just like Jesus was resurrected to a new glorious resurrected body. We too will not be lame or crippled anymore. But because our Savior rose from the dead, made like him, like him we rise, we too one day will experience a new resurrected body free of sin on the new heavens and the new earth for a gazillion, bazillion, million years. Praise the Lord. How great is his grace that he lavishes upon us. So to close, friend, this morning, Jesus, the son of David, the king, true king, he's looking for people from the fallen house of Adam to show kindness to. How will you respond? To sit at the king's table is not hard. All one must do is first, in humility, acknowledge that you are like Mephibosheth, sinful, deserving of death, an orphan. And then second, go all in, trusting that Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf 
is sufficient to forgive you of your sins and welcome you into God's kingdom. My prayer is that may this Sunday, may you be part of the people of God, broken orphans who have experienced the love and grace of God. Amen? Let's pray.